0: This morning, we begin a new series of messages entitled God of Glory. And I want to use some illustrations to explain what my goals are for this particular sermon series. So, first, I want you to consider the difference between a car and a hot air balloon. Most of us spend much of our time each week in our vehicles. And we experience the landscape of eastern North Carolina from the perspective of our vehicles. We watch trees pass by, we watch houses and yards pass by, stores and restaurants, fields and cows and fences, and, and we experience it all through the windows of our, of our cars. We cross over the Tar River, we pass by folks checking their mail, we Pass by other folks driving from one place to another, and we, we experience the world at ground level. Now think about the difference in perspective that you get when you get into a hot air balloon, and you begin to rise higher and higher in the air above the landscape. And as you get higher, you begin to see things that you don't quickly notice from ground level. Uh, From the hot air balloon, you can begin to see the shapes that are formed by the fields and and the neighborhoods and the roads. Uh, Instead of the trees that you pass by in your car, uh, from this perspective, you see the whole forest. Instead of crossing over a small portion of the Tar River, uh, you now can see how the river snakes along, how it it turns here and how it, it winds over there. In your car, you see one little piece at a time. From the hot air balloon, you get to see how the pieces come together to form a completed picture. One of my goals in this series is to help us see the completed picture of reality. So often from this pulpit, we're talking about particular pieces of the puzzle. We preach a sermon on loving God or about reading our Bibles, or about the meaning of faith. We preach sermons on spiritual gifts, or principles for marriage, or the evil of abortion, or the importance of prayer, or the urgency of world missions, or having a good work ethic, how to endure trials, what it means to be born again, principles for worship, the significance of the cross, the doctrine of heaven, the doctrine of hell, the sovereignty of God, how to tame our tongues, and always so many pieces that we can preach on so many individual subjects that we get to talk about and it's not wrong to do that we're a ground level people and we need sermons that deal with particular pieces of the puzzle at a time we live our lives from moment to moment in particular space in particular time but let me ask you a question when you're dealing with a piece of a puzzle which is easier Putting the puzzle together without knowing what the finished picture will be? Or putting the puzzle together while looking at what the picture will be on the front of the box? Doesn't knowing what the big picture is help you know how to handle each particular piece? Wouldn't we all agree that seeing the picture on the box helps us know how to make sense of each individual piece? And this is how it is in life. When we know the big picture of who God is and what He is up to, that big picture becomes invaluable in helping us know what to believe and how to live from moment to moment and day to day. Christians are to be a big picture people. We're to be a big picture people because the Bible is a big picture kind of book. Don't get me wrong, The Bible tells us plenty about how to live in the everyday moments that come in our lives. But the Bible also does not shy away from the big picture. The Bible doesn't shy away from statements about the meaning of life. The Bible doesn't speak in vague, mystical language about the purpose of history. No, the Bible very clearly and very straightforwardly addresses what this entire universe is about and why man exists and and where it's all heading. Uh, The Bible unashamedly declares the reasons for our existence, the the reason you exist, the reason I exist, and the grand purpose that God is carrying out in and around us. The Bible doesn't tell us everything. Everything. But it certainly tells us enough. And I think it often tells us more than most people realize. So, one of my goals in this series is to help us put the biblical information together so that with the Spirit's help, we can see the big picture. And I want you to do more than see the big picture, I want you to love the big picture. I want you to marvel at the big picture of what God is doing in this world. And as you do, it will affect your life. So that's one goal of this series. Second goal of this series. Do you remember that C.S. Lewis illustration that we so often use about making mud pies in the slums when you could be enjoying a holiday at the ocean? I'm going to read you, actually, the the direct words from C.S. Lewis. This was his essay, The Weight of Glory, and here's what Lewis says. Listen carefully to this. It's very good. He says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I suggest that that notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child, Who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea? Lewis ends the statement by saying, We are far too easily pleased. Now, my own version of that illustration that I've used a thousand times from this pulpit is this Why would you settle for the Snickers bar when you could have the Thanksgiving feast? Yes. This world has many things to offer, many things that are truly good. Snicker bars are good. But if you fill up on those, you miss out on something even better. God is the Thanksgiving feast. And there is more joy to be found in seeing him, savoring him, communing with him, basking in his goodness, serving in his kingdom. There is more joy to be found there than can be found in anywhere else in the world. God is the giver of all good things. And the chief gift that he gives us is himself. He himself is the best of all his gifts. God's gifts are wonderful. God himself is even better. God is the ocean of infinite delight. We ought to swim in the ocean of our God. And I've been preaching that for years from this pulpit. And then we say amen, and we go home. And I want to do something different with this series I don't want to just tell you to go swim in the ocean of God. I want to lead us in a group swim. I want to lead us in a few messages in seeing and savoring the goodness of God, both in his person and in his works. And as you see the big picture, and as you see God revealed in his glory, My prayer is that you will find yourself trusting him more, cherishing him more, depending on him more, with a kind of depth that perhaps we've never had before. As with every series that I preach, but especially with this series, I am praying for God to do big things. And so I ask that you would join me in that prayer in the coming weeks, that God would do big things as we study him and his works together. So where do we begin? We begin with Psalm 145. And what I want to press upon us from this passage is an invitation. More than an invitation. A call. I want to press upon us a call for each and every one of us in this room to set our minds on God. If this series is going to bless us, we must be a thinking church we need to know what it is to love the lord our god with all our minds so look with me at psalm 145 i'm going to read verses 1 through 9 but we're going to focus this morning on verse 5 so take special note of verse 5 as we pass by it beginning in verse 1 this is the word of god I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, is over all that he has made now the book of psalms is full of a variety of types of songs some of the psalms that we find in the book of psalms are lamentations they're songs of sorrow songs of grief other psalms are similar to the one that we sang earlier this morning they're prayers for God to help in the midst of a trial other psalms, like some we've been singing recently, are what we call imprecatory psalms. They're psalms asking God to bring judgment on His enemies. But at the heart of the book of psalms is the theme of praise unto God. The chief purpose of the songs in the book of psalms is that they would be used in leading us to praise God. The book of psalms is a book of praise. And therefore it is no accident that though the book of Psalms contains a variety of different kinds of songs, the last six Psalms of the book are all pure praise. Now Psalm 140 through Psalm 144, they're different. Psalm 140 through 144, that's five consecutive psalms of prayer, asking for God's help, bringing petitions unto God. But beginning with this psalm, beginning with Psalm 145 to the end of the book, everything is all about the glory of God on high and lifting Him up and exalting Him. Just like Christians go through seasons in their lives, We go through mountaintops of joy. And we go through valleys of sorrow. So the book of Psalms contains songs that reflect the full scope of the Christian life. But after all of those various seasons are over, the Christian is brought into the presence of God and into a world of praise. The end of the Christian journey is praise. And it's the end of the book of Psalms as well. Faithful Christians of the past have said that those who sing these final psalms, those who make these psalms their own and bring them into their daily lives, they're doing the work of heaven ahead of time. As you study, as you sing, as you meditate on, as you memorize Psalm 145-50 through and make them your own, you get a little taste of heaven on earth as you engage in these praises. Now, in verse 5 of this psalm, we find David declaring a resolution. He's declaring something that he will do. There's determination here. There's a commitment to do something and to do this thing continually throughout his life. So what is it that David, in the midst of these joyful praises, is declaring that he will do? And the answer is he is declaring that he will will meditate. And by declaring that he will meditate, David is declaring that he is going to sit on a blanket in the middle of a field, put his fingers close together, clear his mind and say, "um." Is that what he's saying? Is that what it means to meditate? Of course not that idea of meditation comes from eastern religions like zen buddhism in those religions the goal of meditation is to clear the mind to empty the mind to transcend this world and become one with the cosmic spirit as they might would say it's very different from what david's talking about david's not talking about emptying his mind he's talking about filling his mind in the bible To meditate is to think. To meditate is to ponder. If you're using a different translation than the ESV, you might have the word speak here. Because literally in the Hebrew, the idea is is the one of speaking to yourself. Anybody here ever talk to yourself? Right? That's what he's talking about. He is going to talk to himself. He is going to ruminate over something. He's going to dwell on something. He's going to be considering something. In the Bible, to meditate is to take a truth and to hold it up before your mind like a diamond and then to look at it from all its various angles and to consider it. Mount Hermon, I cannot overstate how important the mind is in the Christian life. God is a spirit. God is invisible. You will not see God in this life with your physical eyes. You can see expressions of God with your physical eyes. You can see his handiwork, but you cannot see God with your physical eyes. He's a spirit. He does not have a body like men. He is invisible. How do we see God in this world? We see God with our minds. Maurice Roberts says, Our mind is the precious telescope created within each man by our maker himself to enable us to peer out beyond all created things and to see God. Or think of it this way. When God chose to reveal himself to us so that we could know him and taste him and see that he is good, He did not choose to give us a picture book you ever thought about that the Bible is not a picture book right the Bible is not a collection of drawings it's not a collection of, of paintings that help us to see God no when God reveals himself to us in the full revelation of the word of God how does God help us to see him it's in ideas words truth we see God in the mind As we ponder words, ideas, truth. Mount Hermon, it's not enough to simply open up your Bible at home, read a passage, and then put it away. Those things you've read that you just read, put it away, and you forget about it, they will have little effect on you. God's truth becomes powerful in our lives when we ponder God's truth. When we read the passage in the morning, put our Bible away, but we don't put the truth away. We hold on to what we read that morning and we consider it throughout the day. We, we, we suck on it like, like chewing gum. You're getting the flavor out of it as you move through the day. If you come to Sunday school or preaching and you hear the word of God, but you do no more than that, you will have little benefit. It's as you take God's truths home with you, in your mind, considering them, that they become a greater blessing to you. Another analogy. During preaching, I'm giving you the orange. When you hear, and then especially as you consider, you begin squeezing the orange and you begin to pull out all of the nutrients and the nourishment for your soul. The Puritan Thomas Manton put it this way he said a Christian without meditation is like a soldier without arms or a workman without his tools without meditation the truths of God will not stay with us the heart is hard and the memory slippery and without meditation all is lost or for another witness Richard Baxter Richard Baxter said why so much preaching is lost among us And professing believers can run from sermon to sermon and are never weary of hearing or reading and yet have such languishing, starved souls I know of no true or greater cause than their ignorance and unconscionable neglect of meditation. The Bible commands us again and again, especially in the book of Psalms, to chew on the Word of God, to dwell on it, Now, I want to be very clear about something. The Bible knows nothing of a separation between heart and mind. When the Scripture speaks of meditation, it's not talking about thinking thoughts of God while feeling nothing. It's just the opposite. Did you notice in this psalm, David is clearly caught up in emotion. His heart is aflame as he writes these words. He's he's called up in praising God from his heart. And it's in this emotional heart of flame context that David says, I will dwell on you. I will meditate on you. I will think upon you. When we talk about meditating on the Lord or loving the Lord with all our minds, we need to remember that love itself is at least partially emotional. Our affection for God is what prompts us to think about Him. And the more we think about Him, and the more we come to see new truths about Him, the more our affection for Him grows. These things serve each other. Your love for God and your thinking about God serve each other and build together, head and heart together. Roberts again. He says, whether we call it theology, meditation, devotion, or piety, the practice of fixing our thoughts on God till our hearts are strangely warmed is the best bliss we can experience this side of eternity. And I think that's exactly right. There is no greater foretaste of heaven in this world than being caught up in high and lofty thoughts about God that cause us to stand amazed. Or thoughts that cause us to fall on our faces in sheer wonder that this God would love us and make us his own. Notice in our verse the focus of David's meditation. He tells us first that he's going to meditate on God's splendor. What does that mean? How do we meditate on splendor? And then he goes further. He says he's going to meditate on the splendor of God's majesty. So he's going to ponder, consider, dwell on the splendor of the majesty of God. And then there's the adjective, right? As if words like splendor and majesty were not enough, he tells us he's going to meditate on the glorious splendor of God's majesty. Well, here's what we need to note here. Note, these are not particular attributes of God. Rather, these are attributes that describe everything that God is. These words, splendor, majesty, glorious, these are words that describe each and every one of God's characteristics, God's attributes. God's wisdom is a glorious wisdom. Uh, A wisdom that is shown in splendor is a majestic wisdom. God's love is a glorious love, a, a splendorous love, a majestic love. God's power is a majestic power. These are big words that describe each individual attribute of God and describes all that they are together. These words are an attempt, and they're just an attempt, to describe the greatness of all that God is. These words describe each attribute of God individually and they describe all that He is in the fullness of all of His attributes come together. It's interesting, each of these words is often related to to light in the Bible. When we think of splendor or glory, we think of the shining of the sun or of a brilliant white light that makes everything shine. In the Bible, light is a picture of all that is good. And just like there is no light in our solar system that compares with the light of the sun, so there is nothing in all creation that is good and pure and glorious the way God is good and pure and glorious. God is presented in the Bible as so majestic and glorious that even the flying creatures that encircle His throne cover their eyes with their wings because he is too glorious for even them to look upon so what is david saying here to put it simply he's saying that he's going to meditate on just how great god truly is he's going to meditate on the person of god He is going to dwell on all that God is. The loftiness of who God is. The supremacy of who God is. This is God high and lifted up. This is a God worthy of reverence and worthy of all. Now Herman, how much of the wickedness in our world right now is the direct result of people having low thoughts of God? How different would our culture be if people had high and lofty thoughts of God? How different would this church be? How different would your life be if you were entertaining regularly in your own minds the glory of God, the grandeur of God, the glorious splendor of His majesty? We live in a culture that no longer fears the Lord, There is no reverence, and low thoughts of God brings low people. Uh, A.W. Tozer said it this way in 1961. So this is 1961, and A.W. Tozer is commenting on people in his day, the times in which he lived, and he said this. He said, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. Tozer says, With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and the consciousness of the presence of God. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity, he said, is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the Spirit. The word, be still and know that I am God, means next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in the middle period of the 20th century. Now friends, if that was true in 1961, what can we say about the situation in 2015? Do we not need even more to recover the truth of the greatness of our God? Can I suggest to you that the greatest need of American Christians today is not to recover a biblical definition of marriage? And it's not to recover a biblical definition of the sanctity of life? And it's not even to recover the biblical definition of faith? The greatest need of American Christianity is to recover the biblical definition of God. Who is he? And what has he done? What we need more than anything else is to see God as He really is and to know Him in the glorious splendor of His majesty. But David doesn't stop with the person of God. For one of the main ways that we know about the person of God is through His deeds. So David's resolution in verse 5 is that he will meditate on the person of God and on the wondrous works of God. Do you see that in verse 5? He'll meditate on the wondrous works of God. In the Gospels, Jesus taught us that the true nature of a person can be known by what he says and does. So a tree is known by its fruit. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, we make decisions and we reveal who we truly are. Well, it's the same thing with God. If you want to know who God is in His person, look at his deeds. Look at what he's done and what he is doing. Do we need evidence of the power of God? Look at how he split the Red Sea in half. Look at how he caused the sun to stand still in the sky for Joshua. Look at how he created everything just by opening his mouth. Do we need evidence that our God is a God of justice? Look in the Old Testament and see how many times God brought judgment on sinful nations. Look at the cross and see how God would not even allow the sins of his own chosen people to go unpunished. Do we need evidence that our God is a God of mercy? But then look at the cross and hear Christ cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look and see how God raised up apostles and prophets to take the message of salvation to the world. How even today, we are in this room right now because of the providence of our God bringing us here that His mercy might be proclaimed. If we want to know the person of our God, one way to see who He is is to see what He's done and what He's doing. God is revealed in His wondrous works. Believers in this room, How often do you just think about all that God has done for your sake and on your behalf? How often do you meditate on the things he did for the salvation of your soul before you were even born? You were not even a twinkle in your father's eye when Jesus Christ had already given his life for you. Do you ever take time to think about what it means that infinite, eternal, cannot be contained God became finite man for you? That you would be saved? Do you find yourself ever thinking about Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and how his agony there fitted him to be the perfect comforter for you in your agony today? Do you ever think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and how His resurrection from the dead guaranteed your spiritual resurrection that you would be born again and guaranteed your one day physical resurrection when Jesus Christ comes back? Do you ever stop and think about all the providences of God that came together to result in your salvation? Because friends, billions of people have lived and died on this planet and never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Billions have gone to hell without ever believing. And in the providence of God, you were born at a certain time, in a certain place, to a certain family. And certain experiences happened in your life and God brought certain people into your life and the gospel was brought to you and you were given faith to believe And in the awesome providence of God, you are one of the few who are walking the narrow path that leads to heaven. And it's not because you're smarter than others. It's not because you're wiser. It's because you're blessed. You ever stop and dwell on the wondrous works of God for you? On and on we could talk about the marvelous works of God on our behalf. The fact that Jesus is interceding for us right now in heaven. The fact that there are angels that you and I can't even see who are working on our behalf to protect us from untold numbers of physical and spiritual snares. God does good stuff in us when we dwell on his works for us. And how can we not overflow in humility and thanksgiving and praise when these are the kinds of thoughts running through our heads, when these are the thoughts that occupy our minds, how can we complain? Because I wanted a ham and mayonnaise sandwich, and we're out of mayonnaise. So we could sum up the main truth of verse 5 in this way. The person and works of God are worthy subjects for our thinking. That's the doctrine I take out of verse 5. The person and works of God are worthy subjects for our thinking. To which you say, Justin, that's the understatement of the year. And you're right. It is an understatement. Now, next in this sermon are five reasons that we should heed the call to think often and deeply about God. And then four points of application. And we're clearly not going to get there this morning. So we're going to pick back up next time. But I do want to end the sermon this morning with the first reason. And just the first reason why you should heed the call to think often and deeply about God. Or to put it another way, this is the first of five reasons why you should imitate the resolution of David in Psalm 145 verse 5. And here it is. There is no subject that is more exciting or more compelling than God. There is no subject that is more exciting or more compelling than God. And I would just ask do you agree with that? In your own mind and in your own heart. Do you agree? There's nothing more exciting to think about. There's, there's no subject more compelling than God. It's absolutely true, but dear friends, your flesh doesn't want you to know this. Your flesh doesn't want you to feel this. Your flesh cannot thrive when your soul is filled with high thoughts of God. Your wicked desires and your fleshly lusts cannot continue unchecked and unrestrained when you begin to see just how much better God is than all the temptations of this world. And so, like Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden, your flesh wants you to run in the opposite direction from God. Your flesh wants you to find God boring. It's in the best interest of your flesh. That you think God is dull. Friends, God is a lot of things, but dull is not one of them. The person who finds thinking about God to be dull is not revealing that God is dull, but that their own heart is dull. That they have been so hardened by sin that they're unable to be excited by the one who is the most exhilarating being in the universe. If you find God boring, the problem is not God. Now, if you picture God as some old man up in the clouds with a long beard sitting in a rocking chair, okay, that God is boring. Or if you picture God as some ethereal, mystical James Earl Jones voice that just speaks from time to time, okay, that God is boring. But any view of God that allows you to think of him and not be enthralled is a false view of God. The true God is a consuming fire. The true God speaks galaxies into existence. The true God creates funny things like kangaroos and platypuses. He confounds the wisdom of our smartest scientists. And he is working out a plan that is so amazing that even the angels in heaven are longing to look into it. The true God is a warrior but also a lover. He is a judge and also an advocate. He can come at you with the force of a hurricane and he can speak to you with the gentleness of a still, small voice. This is the God that makes donkeys talk. Axe heads float and men walk away unscathed from a fiery furnace. This God is both a father and a son. And what really boggles the mind is that since the incarnation, God is both creator and creation. He is potter and clay at the same time. He is beyond all time. He is beyond all space and he completely fills every moment and every space. And let me just say one more thing and we'll be done. If you don't find God very exciting, what do you find exciting? Because anything else that you find exciting in this world wouldn't exist except for this God. If you find anything exciting, do you say, I find God boring, but I find football exciting? Where do you think football came from? You see, well, it came from this guy who had this idea. Yeah, where did that idea come from? You see, I find God boring, but I love movies. Not one movie would exist if they did not have some part to play in the ultimate plan that God wrote before the foundations of the world. God wrote Star Wars before George Lucas wrote Star Wars. If anything in this world is interesting or exciting to you, know that it came from God on high. And I know one thing that you have a lot of interest in, and that's you. And guess where you came from? And guess whose image you bear? And so, I'm going to quote Roberts one final time. To think about God is the most exciting occupation possible for any created being. No doubt, explorers who first tread on the soil of some uninhabited land felt awe and wonder at the privilege. And understandably, the scientist peering into his microscope at some hitherto unrecognized organism Or the astronomer who gazes at some far-flung galaxy is breathless with rapture at the sight of what is so unknown and so rare to men. But what are lost continents or stars or microorganisms compared to the blessed and the living God? And so Mount Hermon, I extend the invitation to each and every one of us. Will you join me over the next many weeks in thinking the highest, best, and most wonderful thoughts we can think? Will you join me in beholding God with the eye of the mind? Will you come with an open heart and an eager spirit and a prayerful hunger that God will make himself known to us in ways that we cannot even now imagine? I pray that he will. Let's pray.